humans because I want to make sure, A, that they get this before they go moving into trying to do it with another human. I want to make sure, B, that they have learned to be uncomfortable, or sorry, learned to be comfortable being just a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that they have found a way to value an experience that is less than completely perfect. Once we can get those things together and start getting them moving forward. But again, this is only if they want to be more physically connected to their partner. You're listening to Love and Libido with me, your host, Dr. Emily Jamia. The goal of this podcast is to educate and inspire. My hope is that you will learn tools to create connection and cultivate passion, both within yourself and in your relationships. Here's what's coming up on today's episode. Have you ever wondered if you or your partner might fall on the autism spectrum? Do you have autism and struggle to understand how to navigate romantic relationships and sex? Do you have an autistic child and are wondering how to help them navigate their sexuality in a healthy way? Then you need to listen to today's episode. Autism affects about 2% of the population, and we are beginning to have a clear understanding about how to help autistic folks have meaningful relationships and sexual experiences if that's what they desire. Today, I sit down with sex counselor Nicholas Mayo Ether. He brings a unique perspective as a licensed clinician and an autistic adult. Together, we chat about all things sex, love, and autism. Let's get started. I want to take a moment to tell you about an incredible app called MJoy. MJoy is an app for women who want to learn how to have consistent orgasms, boost their libido, experience body acceptance and high self-esteem, and improve their relationships. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have already benefited from all that MJoy has to offer. Click the link in the show notes to claim your 14-day free trial. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Okay. Welcome, Nicholas, to the show. I am so excited to have you here today. So Nicholas, you treat all kinds of people, but April is Autism Awareness Month. And so I really want to focus a little bit more specifically on how you help this community of individuals. But before we dive in, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Can you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself, your story, and how you got into the field? Oh my goodness. How much time do you have? (laughs) I am a board certified behavior analyst. I'm also kind of known in the field of behavior analysis for doing a lot of work with human sexuality, doing a lot of work with gender, and working to try and utilize this modality in very positive ways for people of all backgrounds, certainly including autism. When we're working with autistic adults, you know, there's just so much that needs to go into this work. But a little bit more about me first, because I'm I'm passionate about the work, in case you yeah. haven't noticed. Um, I could tell that from your smile in the headshot you sent me. I could just, it, I felt that, that came across. So where did that passion come from? A lot of this started growing up in Anchorage, Alaska, and I didn't know until I was 26 that I was on the autism spectrum. Like I, I got my diagnosis really late. But growing up there and being kind of a weird kid and not having a lot of good sex ed or people who understood like that, you know, it's okay to be different. Really, it made me feel incredibly pushed into like a little corner. I felt very much like I was wrong. There was something wrong with me. There was something wrong with anybody who felt like me, which was few and far between. And I was working at an adult store. I don't think when you you meet the average behavior analyst, uh, most of them don't have like five years of working in an adult store on their resume. Yeah, I I would agree with you there. (laughs) 
And if they had it, they wouldn't put it on their resume. Right, right. Right. Whereas I'm like, this is so appropriate for what I want to do with my life. But when I was working there, I had a lot of people in the community who came to the store because they knew I was there, because they knew that the advice I was giving was based in sex ed and sexual health and really started to spiral very quickly. The owner of the store, Larry Flint, and his daughter, Teresa Flint, came out to the store, got to know what we were doing. And Teresa Flint ended up giving me an article in Hustlers Retail magazine called Nick's Picks. And it was all about sex toys and how to use them to enhance your relationship rather than, you know, just rely on a sex toy. Uh, So that picked up. I ended up on the radio as the toy boy for a while. And then I was starting my practicum in applied behavior analysis. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, (laughs) it's like, where do I... How do I make all this work? Yeah. So I started in an autism children's clinic and they were like, don't tell anybody your background. Don't tell anybody where you came from kind of a thing. Not everybody, but a lot yeah. of people were telling me that, but I was like, I want to bring this background into behavior analysis. I'm not here to learn to whip little autistic kids into what neurotypical adults think is good behavior. That is not why I did this. I got into it because being autistic, I want something that is rigid and clear and easy for me to understand. And ABA really is. And so I was like, this is a mental health science that will work for me as a practitioner to connect to humans. It's a very different reason for getting in there in the first place, because I always got into it thinking I was going to use this to enhance people's sex lives. I was like, this will be an alternative to sex therapy and we'll make this available to different populations. I ended up doing it anyway. I just stuck to my guns and I was never quiet. I was loud and over time just got more and more known. And at this point now I'm a national, international level consultant. I've got multiple teams across the U.S. and Canada that I've been assisting with. Mm -hmm. And then I've also been helping mentor people's careers. As far out as I got one person in Ireland, I've been assisting. Wow. Very cool. What an interesting story. I, that's why I love asking this question because there is so much in people's backgrounds that isn't, has in some way shaped their career paths and you would have never guessed. And I think that that is really cool that you had that experience. Can you talk a little bit, Nicholas, about how you came to realize that you fell on the spectrum and how you were diagnosed? And we're going to talk a little bit more about what some of the symptoms are of autism, but it is thought of as happening on a spectrum now. There are some people who are diagnosed with autism who have symptoms that are hardly noticeable, if at all, and other people who have symptoms that are clearly obvious. So can you talk a little bit about your experience for anyone who maybe thinks they could have autism, or maybe they are in a relationship with someone who might have autism? I will say it's it's tricky. A lot of the symptoms that can get you diagnosed with autism are also overlapping symptoms for a lot of other disorders. Some of them are actually relatively common things. It's just, you know, you have all of them in one person is going to be more aligned for an autism diagnosis. So much of my life, I just thought I was weird. Like I'm just quirky. I'm just yeah. different. And I will still stand by those things. <laughs> little things that it was always just kind of like, why? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why is this such a big deal for you when it is a little thing? So for instance, like socks, we had the great sock meltdown of 93. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Putting on socks that have Mm -hmm. a seam in the wrong place. Oh my gosh, still to this day. It's my, one of my bigger pet peeves. It freaks me out to have it on my feet. But I also recognize now, you know, years into delivering mental health, I can address this very different ways than initially. And 
while I would never recommend like intentionally making myself uncomfortable, I wouldn't tell a client ever, you know, just get through it. Just wear the crappy socks because there is an alternative. I can go buy the socks that fit great and, and don't feel yucky. But I've also learned that there's some things that can't be changed. And if it can't be changed, I really have to work to make sure that I'm able to move forward with that context or that situation that I'm able to get what I value. And that oftentimes means being more uncomfortable than I think other people are in a lot of Mm. those situations. And so it's a tricky one because it's like, you don't want to ask somebody who's autistic to just grin and bear it. At the same time, we don't want to say, then just give up. Right. (laughs) There's so much, there's so much in the middle. I mean, there's so much in the middle. So much in the middle. Yeah. And I think that that's something to just kind of really acknowledge is like, everything in life is going to be so much grayer, but even outside of autistic adults, I think neurotypical people do this a lot is over categorize over and under generalize and put things way too black and white learning to see the gray, but also not discounting black and white solid information. Right. Got to really navigate that. I think that's such an interesting paradox that gray is such a blessing for people who have autism, who are maybe more black and white thinkers. And also gray is incredibly uncomfortable. Black and white's comfortable. I might not like it, but I get it. Right, you can make (laughs) sense of it. I was working in the clinic. I was about, I started in the clinic when I was uh, 25. And then when I was 26, I was, I had been working with a variety of little humans. And and over that first year, I was like, you remind me of me. That's so crazy. You remind Mm -hmm. me of me. Oh, I've seen this. But then I was like, oh, you know, you're just trying to connect too much with them. But it just kept happening. And then I had I had a kid who had like a mirrored parallel of one of my bigger throwdowns. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, he's being so autistic kind of a thing. They weren't using those words, but that's really what they meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just sitting there going, but this, no, he's, he's just being very mean. Uh, and I was like, you know, maybe yeah. I should just uh, check in on something here. Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's helpful because you know, just talking to you, it's not something I would have guessed. And I think that's why, again, it's so helpful that we have a spectrum now that we can categorize some of this behavior. So autism affects about 2% of the population. That's one in 54 individuals. So chances are, if you're out at a restaurant somewhere, someone in the room is going to be autistic. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about what some of the symptoms are for people who might not know? I definitely don't know a, an exhaustive list off the top of my head. I will note as a, as a behavior analyst, like we're not trained to diagnose. What I do know is what I see a lot of and what I've experienced. Over and under generalizing is a big issue. Seeing life as a series of bursts, uh, rigidity and expecting things to continue to be the same way, a lack of effective empathy. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I think is, ability to really understand another person's emotions. Yes. And, and mm-hmm. I, I think something to really note there is that, that doesn't mean that we're not empathetic or that we don't uh, care. Um, yeah. I think a lot of the time it's just not understanding why we should in a certain situation. That's a great way of, <laughs> that's a great way of saying it actually. Yeah, like, why should I care about this? Yeah, I appreciate that. Which like, is probably what a, a lot of um, neurotypical people are actually thinking at the same time, but have a harder, you know, neurotypical people feel a greater pressure, I think, to confine to societal norms and people with autism don't as much. Yeah. Um, or 
there are. I, I do know some people, autistic adults, who are incredibly pressured to uh, to societal norms, and actually mm-hmm. so much so that it uh, causes perseveration, hyperfixation, which is another common thing in autism. Mm-hmm. Sensory concerns, very very common in autism. Yeah. Um, something that uh, I did not know, other people did not know until we started having a lot of conversations about being like, oh, wait, I'm like an autistic adult who's like around people mm-hmm. who are trying to work with autistic children. A sensory uh, processing thing, it hurts. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's hard to explain, but like it, it hurts. Um, the, the socks being on my feet wrong hurt. For a neurotypical person, this is my, my best way to explain this. If I ran my fingernails down a chalkboard, you would have physical discomfort beyond it just sounding yucky. Oh yeah. Right? I mean, just when you say that and you, you'd make the motion, I like physically cringe a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Imagine that, that discomfort, which we try to get away from. Nobody likes fingernails on a chalkboard. Right. Right. That lasts maybe three, four seconds and it's almost unbearable. Now ask somebody to go through that all day because they have sensory processing disorder. And what you view as just an uncomfortable sock is like being stuck for nine hours with fingernails on a chalkboard. How would you handle your day? Would you be pleasant? No. Would you be easy to redirect? (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) If someone told you to stop making a big deal out of your socks, would you be able to handle that? No. Right. (laughs) No and no. (laughs) So when we look at non-compliance and autism, I'm like, why are you teaching compliance training? No, these people are very clearly uncomfortable. They are letting you know they're uncomfortable, which is advocacy, and you're punishing them for it. And that's not mental health, that's abuse. And so that's something that has really come down uh, uh, hard on the field of ABA is how uh, neurotypical adults are utilizing it with autistic children. Um, something to really know is no requirement in behavior analysis school or training that says that you ever have to learn about autism. So let's talk a little bit about what relationships and sexuality are like for autistic adults. Now, I want to caveat this by acknowledging there is a wide variety in how autistics experience sex and relationships. We want to be very careful not to speak in generalizations, but I do think that there is some research that is interesting to cite that a lot of people might not be aware of, and that is that autistic folks are about seven times more likely than neurotypical people to identify as trans or gender nonconforming, and about 55 to 70% more likely to identify as LGBTQIA+. That is a huge difference from people who are neurotypical. So can you talk a little bit about that and why that might be? I appreciate that. Um, Did I provide you those statistics? No, (laughs) I did did my homework. (laughs) That's really good because Mm -hmm. that's that's usually one of the main ones that I throw forward. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you're looking at George and Stokes, 2018. Um, So I'm sorry, Uh, I get nerdy on my research. There's a few different theories in place looking at all of this. The queerness, (laughs) the level of LGBTQIA plus identity within this community is astronomically high. Uh, we do find that there is even higher than just queer identity in general. As you said, seven times more like trans or gender nonconforming. That's a huge statistic. What that really has uh, has shown is, is that uh, a lot of these, because if you think about um, if you are being gender nonconforming, 
that means that the way that you are expressing your gender, and gender is an individual concept of how you feel about yourself in terms of masculinity or femininity. No one can dictate your gender per se, but how you perceive masculinity or femininity will be shaped to some degree by the systems that taught you these things and the interactions that you have witnessed that have been uh, gendered, uh, certain gender roles, things of that nature. Now, the less interaction you have with the world around you, or less, I don't know why I should care about this, that you have a, uh, with the world around you, the less impacted you're going to be by those things. So it is a, a very, in my opinion, sound theory, but it is still theory mm -hmm. that a lot of this comes from not caring so much about social pressure yeah. um, or not understanding it and giving up on social pressure. <laughs> right. And so living authentically, you're less likely to dress up in a way that's uncomfortable because that's what you're supposed to wear on Sundays. You're yeah. less likely to dress up <laughs> in an uncomfortable way because you're going to school. You're less likely to put on makeup uh, because you're supposed to be dolled up. And you're more likely to put on makeup because you want to look like the anime character that you love to emulate, right? right so like, right. it's just... <laughs> It's kind of like, or because the brush feels good on your face, right? Or I mean, seriously, I, I almost just cursed and I'm so sorry. Uh, oh, you can't. But, it's okay. I, <laughs> Sometimes there's only a four letter word. <laughs> I think, you know, there's something to be said for the empowering self-care elements that go into, uh, to dolling yourself up when it is for you. Yeah. Right. Uh, or the amount of self-care that you can access when you're not busy dolling yourself up for other people. Mm -hmm. So like all around, we can have greater quality of life. Uh, and so that's an interesting component is like in that regard, are autistic people leading the way? Uh, yeah. So that's kind of a neat one. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful theory because you're right. I mean, autistic people are generally not as affected by societal pressures, and that includes subscribing to specific gender roles. And so, yeah, maybe they are living more authentically in some way. And I, I also want to note that there are times, again, where, where the pressure is felt, but the inability to adhere to the expectation has caused burnout and resignation. Mm -hmm. And then eventually... You're dressing comfortably every day. Yeah. That feels good. So it starts mm -hmm. to reinforce itself. Right. So uh, I just want to note that like when I first started this work, I was told autistic people don't feel social pressure. Mm. I feel immense social pressure. Okay. And it's part of why I act the way I do. And part of why I think a lot of people are like, you don't strike me as autistic. Right. Uh, because when I'm not around people, I do uh, let go a bit more. Um, mm -hmm. Like my husband knows my stims, uh, right? If we're watching a movie and I'm truly relaxed, I am making noise that whole time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for reflecting that because I think that just goes to show that this is probably a bias and a generalization that I hold that a lot of people might hold. And it's an unfair assumption and isn't true for a lot of people. So we do need to keep that in mind. And I think that when people with autism do feel those pressures, as you're describing, they can often engage in what's called like masking or 
Um, you know, they'll try to replicate what they see in, you know, popular TV shows or on the internet or on social media to try to appear more quote unquote typical, um, so that it doesn't, they're, they're the pressure that they feel isn't coming across. Yes. Um, look at echolalia or scripting. Oh, actually. Yeah. Let's look at scripting. Okay. Okay. How many times do kids, autistic kids, or even teens, hopefully not happening too much with the adults, um, but they respond to stuff using movie quotes, or they show up into a situation and out of nowhere interject with a random quote. Um, and it has nothing to do to anybody else's understanding, nothing to do with the situation. But then this individual, they do this thing, everyone else thinks that the individual messed up. But then the individual's looking at everybody else like, why did you think that I messed up? And I think a lot of that comes down also to social pressure. Because in autism, I think a lot of the time we're trying to connect, but we don't know how. And if we do connect, we get bad reactions. So we watch TV can hold our attention. A lot of mm -hmm. autistic people, not everyone. But we know where to focus. We can lose ourselves in that world. And so it can be easier to learn socially through television characters and movies than through social people in the environment who are unpredictable and moving around doing different things. Whereas I can rewatch this movie and all the variables stay the same. Mm -hmm. I can learn from it. Yeah. And so uh, as a kid, I was known <laughs> for quoting movie uh, movies and expecting circumstances to play out the way that they did for the characters in the movies. Mm. So if I came in and I said something random and crazy, it's not random and crazy to me. To me, this situation reflects what I saw in the movie. In the movie, this character did this and they were reinforced. Everyone loved this. I want everyone to love me. So I'm going to say this thing. Right. But now everyone's looking at me like I did something wrong and they say it's because I don't care. What? Right. No, I cared too much, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to too hard. To mm -hmm. Yeah. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. My inbox is flooded with DMs on a daily basis with people just like you who want help with their sex and relationship issues. I wish I had time to answer all your questions, but luckily other resources are available. Look, without healthy relationships and a calm mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. You deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. And as a special offer to Love & Libido listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash Dr. Emily. That's betterhelp.com slash Dr. Emily. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think that can make relationships really challenging for people with autism. What are some qualities that you see among autistic people in their romantic relationships that might be different from people who are neurotypical? One thing is, um, having a lot of self-care wrapped into the relationship. Okay. One thing I have seen is really cool in working with autistic adults and 
my partner has ADHD, um, not autism, but um, even in our relationship, uh, a lot of negotiating, um, being very upfront, saying, this is how it is for me, <laughs> right? Uh, and in, uh, in autistic relationships that I've seen where things are working, it's because they both know each other's boundaries. They know each other's triggers. They know each other's comforts. Um, and so they are able then to bounce off of each other mm -hmm. and do that rather well. Now, there are times where one will be spiraling and the other will try to help and it'll send them both into a spiral. But that can happen in a neurotypical relationship as yeah. well. Um, and so uh, I think that a, a large part of this actually, and it's so funny because I don't think a lot of people would consider it, but it's very mature communication. I was going to say what I'm hearing, the subtext there is do not try to change your partner, which is a really good reminder for anyone in a neurotypical relationship as well. Like accept what your, what your partner needs in that moment and accept who they are and what their boundaries are. Yes. Um, I think that, uh, some other things that I have seen that, um, that do warrant, uh, addressing, um, is that if, um, if both partners and, and this can definitely, it's impactful in neurotypical relationships too, but I think in autism, there's just kind of a magnifying glass over its intensity. But if both partners uh, are um, having some sort of struggle with their mental health, uh, I have found that it can just be an incredible level of spiraling and intensity within the autism uh, mm. relationships uh, where, uh, you know, things can can lead to very quick uh, spirals and meltdowns and things of that nature. Um, so getting in and really working with them if they have not already negotiated safe spaces has been a big one. Um, you need to have your downtime. I have this room that you see right here. This mm -hmm. is my room. This is my husband does not come into this room unless it is to, to ask me a question. Yeah. Right. They do not set anything of their own down in this room. This is my room, my space. Mm -hmm. After I get done with work, I can be in here and no one can mess with me and I can have quiet and I can put on my Pandora playlist and listen to Lorena McKenna and just like <laughs> relax to some Celtic yeah. music for a little bit before I go and like, you know, try and face the rest of the day, which I think in a neurotypical relationship, one of the things that is very common is checking in with each other mm -hmm. and making sure that like, you're, you're there for each other. And that is important. And also it can, it can be annoying. Um, and it can be really upsetting if you're trying to let go of something and you're like trying to transition well, and then somebody is coming in and giving you extra input. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow. Right. Um, yeah. the one thing I will say is, uh, it's possible. It is possible through communication and sometimes we have to make a, a very heavy effort to do so effectively, but it is possible to have a very, very chill relationship when one or both partners are autistic. Uh, well, something that's really neat is we've been called out, my husband and I, um, mm -hmm. we've been asked and all, always by neurotypical people. I don't, I don't know that any of our autistic friends, which we have quite a few, have, yeah. uh, have never said anything, but uh, neurotypical people are often like, I think a little vexed by um, our relationship when they see us argue. Okay, so what would they see? They see a very calm, 
very chill conversation where every now and then things will start to become reactive and then we stop and we take a break for a moment and we talk about something neutral and then we come back into it. We never leave until it's done. But we also, my husband and I take a, a lot of care to be on top of our reactivity levels. And so if one of us is moving into anything where we're becoming kind of reactive, we just both remove the stimulus for a minute, mm -hmm. right? But we're not walking away from it completely. When I've done the work with other autistic couples, that's something that actually I've found that they have done without my needing to come in and tell them this is a thing. It's one of the first things I think that they're advocating is I'm going to need, if things get intense, I'm going to need you to shut up for a minute, right? Like, yeah, just shut up for a minute. So it's a it lot of self-awareness. Well, I, I'm going to say this. A lot of autistic adults are incredibly self-aware, sometimes yeah. so self-aware that they're wrapped up in their own anxieties. Anxiety is another symptom of autism right. um, <laughs> that wraps, wraps over into so many other mental health aspects. Now, this is something I've learned about myself. When my anxiety is high, the impacts of my autism are higher. Mm -hmm. It's much harder for me to get around sensory components. Um, it's harder for me to communicate with other people. Um, if I do, I want to communicate using one-liners from movies that I know are not going to go over well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's still the urge, the right. underlying urge to constantly use yeah. these little things from when I was a kid almost mm -hmm. now. Um, but it's funny. It's just, there's this part of me that will always think that like, if you want a good response, say this. Right. I can't help but default there. So Nicholas, let's talk a little bit about sex on the spectrum. So, you know, again, I'm going to say it again. You'll hear me say it probably 10 times during this episode. We want to be careful not to make generalizations and what you describe as maybe being true for you might be very different from what's true for someone else or for, you know, other people that you work with. Absolutely. But, you know, for a lot of people, sex is a very sensual experience. And for people with autism who have a lot of sensory sensitivities that can pose some challenges. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to start by noting that there's a lot of autistic adults who identify as asexual. Yeah. Higher number than the general population again. Mm -hmm. And I think that that plays into it. Yeah. Uh, you know, sex is weird. <laughs> uh, I'm a sexologist and I can admit sex is weird. It's a, it's yeah. a lovely weird thing, but it mm -hmm. is weird. Uh, you know, there's a lot of smells. Your smells from person to person are different. Um, there's from day to day can be different depending on your diet can be different. Uh, there's the possibility that you might hurt yourself or pull a muscle. There's the possibility that this might not be fun uh, or as fun as last time, or they might not think that it was as fun as their last time. Um, and then of course we run into all of the basic, you know, this might hurt a little, this might, I might not be able to get it up, all of those traditional yeah. anxieties too, right? There's just so many components. Um, but I recently had a, a young woman who described to me that um, uh, like oral sex, uh, it was just horrific for her. Mm. Uh, the feel of flesh in her mouth. She's like, I don't even like to put my finger in my mouth, let alone right. another person's penis, mm -hmm. right? So like, 
for her, it was just very, very intense sensual component. Yeah. Um, so really recognizing a lot of these things, it comes down to, I, I always say, you should never have to have sex. Right. Period. That goes for anybody. Right. Yeah. And I am like the most sex positive person in the world. And I will say, mm-hmm. I would rather somebody never have sex than be forced to have sex once. Mm-hmm. But if what you do want is penetrative sex, or if what you do want is to be able to give oral sex, or if you want more, what I would call like conventional sex acts, there are ways to get through sensory processing disorders impacts on sex. Uh, One of the main ones that we use at my agency is called Sensate Focus. Sensate Focus uh, has been around since the 60s. It did not come from ABA. Um, it's very much a cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, Masters and Johnson developed it themselves. And it's a graduated exposure over 12 to 16 sessions um, that teaches a person to get completely back into touch with their body in a different way, um, while also taking in a lot of uh, Uh, more mindfulness school techniques in which anytime something is noted that is like it's uncomfortable but it's not bad or it's unusual but it's not bad or this smells kind of funny but it's not like bad right as long as something's not like bad you Mm -hmm. learn to like see can I just make room for this can this be part of sex Mm -hmm. assess Um, whether there's a place to feel neutrally about something Yeah, and, which is and, hard for probably someone who is a more black and white thinker and things are either good or bad that there may. So I hear that it's about creating space for things that are in that gray area again. And anytime that you notice that you're having to, you let go of all of it and you come back down into three components of the senses that probably are not affiliated with the problem. So you notice something uh, in texture, you notice something in pressure, you notice something in texture temperature, pressure, and texture. And you do that without focusing on whatever the problem is. So like if, I, if I'm getting touched here and it's uncomfortable, but it's not bad, I'm gonna see if I can make room for that discomfort. And I'm gonna try and notice because if this person's moving, they should be moving during sensate. If they're moving, well, I was uncomfortable here, but now they're over here. So let me just notice what's going on over here, yeah. right? And so it's, it's about constantly anchoring back down and finding other aspects of the experience that are not the parts that are less than desirable while learning to accept and be okay with what's less than desirable and still having that safety net. If something is truly bad or uncomfortable, then we go ahead and we nix it during the exercise. Uh, so it really helps people. And I've used this outside of autism. I use this for vaginismus. I use this for delayed uh, ejaculation, premature ejaculation, low desire. Uh, Sensate focus is like every sex therapist's best friend. It's such a tried and true method for so many things. And well, and using it for autism is something that's newer. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. Mm -hmm. And so what I do now is I actually start with an individual protocol. So when I have somebody who's either uh, a trauma victim or has sensory processing. Uh, We do an individual protocol first where they do uh, at least two, but up to six sessions by themselves before we move into the 12 to 16 couple sessions. Because I wanna make sure, A, that they get this before they go moving into trying to do it with another human. I wanna make sure, B, that they have learned to be uncomfortable, or sorry, learned to be comfortable 
being just a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that they have found a way to value an experience that is less than completely perfect. Once we can get those things together and start getting them moving forward. But again, this is only if they want to be more physically connected to their partner. If they want, we can go a completely different route. How can we move from your, uh, your kind of fixation on the physical and move you if what you're really wanting is just more connection and intimacy? Maybe we move away from the physical side and we start looking at like, what could your sex be that is more tantric? Uh, mm-hmm. Or things where maybe your, your sex is like, they're doing something, you're doing something while you're watching each other you know, yeah. what's called mutual pleasure or mm-hmm. things of that nature. Like, um, so going through and, and finding what is going to be your yum, yeah. um, so that you have a little less yuck in your life, Definitely. Um, but I'll never yuck somebody's yum. And no. I have to let my clients tell me what, what their yums are. And right. sometimes that means they have to go do some exploring and figure it out. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's so important for anybody listening that, we maintain to an extent that we're comfortable, a very flexible, open sexual script, because if we keep that too, too narrow, we're going to end up feeling disappointed and it's going to be harder to find partners that we can connect with in a way that's mutually satisfying. I always say, if you say you had bad sex, you're doing it wrong, (laughs) not because it ended up bad, but because you believed it could. Uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> there's no right or wrong when it yeah. comes to sex. And then the only thing that I can really think of is, is you know, coming down to, to consent, right? Mm-hmm. Outside of that, and consent is what backs our laws too, right? No children, right. no animals, like those things comes down to consent, right? Yeah. So as long as we can respect consent and our consent is being respected, it's a free for all from that point. Right. Sex is an adventure. And as an autistic adult, one thing I will throw out there is that sometimes having variables that are unknown is terrifying. So one thing that I love to do with my couple, I do this with any couple, I don't care where they're at on any spectrum, whatever. Mm -hmm. If I got two humans who are going to be in bed together, first question, am I safe? If you trust this person and you feel safe, what have you got to lose? Jump together, right? Go on an adventure. Don't put a script. There's no ending. Whatever happens, happens. Set up a tent in there, get some Oreos, get a flashlight, (laughs) tell a scary story and end it with a blowjob. I don't know. (laughs) It's your sex. Yeah, totally. (laughs) It's your your yums and Oreos are yum, I think for most people. So Nicholas, let's talk about, well, let me ask you, is everything you're describing like what you described and how you apply sensate focus to people with autism. Is that all part of sexual behavior analysis? Is that what you do? Okay. Yeah. So sexual behavior analysis, again, if we look at behavior analysis as a, as a framework and set of tools through which we can take other therapies or other educational components and then deliver them, everything that I'm doing, as long as I maintain my principles for ABA, is going to be behavior analytic. And so sexual behavior analysis realistically is an alternative to traditional sex ed and traditional sex therapy being taught using very effective science while adhering 
to the principles of sex positivity, human empowerment, and consent ascent, always at the heart of everything. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how parents might apply some of the, those principles to working with kids who might have autism? Oh, um, <laughs> I would say one thing uh, is to really look at, um, at the effective component and to recognize that just because someone says that this is what's right for your kid doesn't mean it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it is wrong to completely discount the field of ABA because there are people out there doing amazing things, um, particularly new work in, in what's called a practical functional assessment, PFA or SBT. Um, that realm of uh, ABA within the autistic component Mm-hmm. is entirely about human empowerment and safety. And I think that that parents, if you've got kids on the autism spectrum, uh, please, please, please consider why, uh, what that is because it is taking the good parts of ABA science and it is taking autistic adult self-advocacy and what they have said that they need and it is combining a lot of that. And so it's a very, very cool cool way to go. I'm not involved. I have full disclaimer. I'm just giving them free advertising at this point. Yeah. Uh, I'm not involved in, in any PFA because I don't do children's autism. You model. don't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, what I also do want to throw out there just uh, uh, as um, uh, how we can help. I don't care if your kid is autistic or not. If you are a parent, a few things you can do. One, do not tickle your kid unless they are okay with it. And if they say no, stop and tell them why. Tell them it's because you value their bodily autonomy. And if they say no, people should stop. And if someone says no to them, they need to stop. Teach them that at three, four years old. You don't have to teach them about sex, but you can teach them consent. Yeah. And I'm thinking too, of just some questions that have come through across my Instagram that relate to this. What, what's your advice to parents who have adolescents who are masturbating and for whom those masturbatory habits have become part of their, um, stims? Well, I'm going to just throw this out there. Anybody masturbating is stimming. Uh, <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> like, that's literally what it is. Yeah, uh, the ultimate but, stim. I, I mean, really, uh, you know, um, but when, when kids are autistic, there is a lens put over them that neurotypical kids don't have put over them. And some of this has to do with the fact that neurotypical kids are good at hiding stuff. Neurotypical kids, once they hit 10, they're doing that. Almost all of them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are doing it four or five times a day. I just want to throw that out there. Very common. Uh, so we see autistic kids doing it like three, four times a day. We're like, oh my gosh, he's obsessed. No, he's a teenager. Yeah. And guess what? His neurotypical peers are doing it too. They're just not getting caught. That's funny. They're <laughs> telling their parents they have to go use the bathroom. And then they're acting like they pooped, but they masturbated. Or they're taking a break at school and using a bathroom stall at school. Or they're going to the woods behind school and doing it on their lunch hour. You'd be amazed at what neurotypical kids are up to, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Just like, I'm I'm like sometimes flabbergasted. (laughs) Uh, But autistic kids just get caught so much more and Mm. notice so much more. What I will say, 
there is a time and a place. Instead of putting shame on the behavior, be very objective, time and a place. And that time doesn't mean a specific time each day, because that's creepy, mom and dad. Please don't tell your kid when to do that. What you can do is you can say, it is not the right time if we're in the middle of doing something as a family. It is not the right time if you are in the middle of getting like lectured. <laughs> uh, those are the wrong times. There's not the right uh, place if you are anywhere other than your bedroom or your bathroom, right? So like really learning then, my kid might spend a good portion of the day in the bathroom touching himself. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, we have to be more okay with that type of thing. I want to note that there is a very sound behavioral principle of satiation and deprivation. And when you get enough of something, you do stop seeking it so much. So allow it to happen for a bit. Yeah. And most often it will reduce on its own. If it does not, you can reach out to me. I'll help you out. We'll put all of Nicholas's contact information in the show notes, not to worry. (laughs) (laughs) Most often it will resolve on its own. Yeah. Uh, Also, it is so normal when you move into adolescence to be exploring with all of these things. And sometimes that's exploring by putting something up your butt or putting something inside your urethra. And those types of things are normal and natural to do at that age and also normal and natural to do kind of anytime. But that's the age when it's starting. And that's also an age when adults are likely to find out that it's happening. Um, Just because a 12 or 13 year old is engaging in sexual behavior also does not mean that they've been abused. Even like a four or five year old who seems to be seeking out sexual behavior has not always been a victim of abuse. Sometimes we just have to get in there, recognize that it is a stim or it's been socially modeled without abuse. Maybe they saw it on a movie or something like that. Um, And so really, again, never addressing from shame because if you address from a shame standpoint, you're actually, there's a lot of science coming out that says that if you try and shame sexual behavior, it increases exponentially and causes the person bad mental health at the same time what we Uh, resist persists yep yeah we really have to look at what people want in life and how can we help them be empowered in what they want which might not be what we initially planned but maybe if we value the empowerment that they're having and if we can value their individuality and their safety we can help them be safe as they get to whatever it is they're seeking. And if that can be what we really focus on, then I don't think we're going to have so many like queer youth killing themselves because yeah. of their parents, which is the most common reason of queer suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times they say, oh, it's bullying. Bullying is a big factor. The parents are actually, CDC re- uh, released a statement saying that parents of queer youth, again, if you have autistic children, 55 to 70% are likely to grow up to be a uh, queer yeah. the majority. Uh, the CDC said parents of queer children are the main factor in preventing or causing suicide. Ugh. So you parents do a yeah. good job by your little humans, mm-hmm. learn to respect them for whoever they are and give them the love that I know you have for them yeah. in a way that they can also see that you have that love for them 
I think that's a beautiful place to land for today's interview. So we'll stop there. Nicholas, this was so informative and educational. I always learn so much from these interviews and I know my subscribers will too. Um, where can people find you if they'd like to learn more? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, they can go to my website that is empoweredcenter.com. Uh, they can also uh, find me on Twitter. I am at Itherian N. Uh, my last name is A-E-T-H-E-R. And then there's an I-A-N and then another N. <laughs> we'll be sure to link everything, people. Don't Thank worry. Thank you. Uh, I think another place, uh, if any behavior analysts are listening to this and you want to take your ABA practice and make it very, very empowering, please consider checking out my educational courses at studynotesaba.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me and until we meet again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to Love and Libido with me, your host, Dr. Emily Jamia. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and drop me a five-star review. Share with a friend who might find it interesting. As much as we can learn from experts, nothing makes us feel more connected than hearing from each other. If you have a story that relates to today's episode or just a general question about sex or your relationship, visit loveandlibido.com and I'll share it on an upcoming episode. Be sure to visit my website, emilyjamia.com to see my latest blogs and to check out my online workshop. Subscribers to my podcast can use code HALFOFF. Finally, you can follow me across all the social media channels for daily sex and relationship tips at Dr. Emily Jamia. Thank you so much for tuning in.